You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. apologize to John and Manning this morning. The awkwardness that occurred as a result of the microphones was my fault. I turned them off because I thought it'd be funny. Um, just kidding. <laughs> I meant to tell them I did. They were running low on battery. So I apologize, guys. He, he had it under control. Uh, I'm James. For those of you guys who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, um, usually responsible for leading the church in song. A handful of times throughout the year, I get to come up to the pulpit and preach, so I'll be doing that for you guys this morning. Uh, And I'm excited to open up God's Word. If you're just joining us for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a while, we have been in the book of Psalms, going through a sermon series called Songs of the Savior. This is round two through this particular sermon series. We did it a few years back, and we'll continue to go through it until we've gone through all 150 Psalms. I don't know about you guys, but I personally love, uh, enjoy studying these psalms. It's been a blessing to sit under these preachings, but um, I think it's just the fact that there are truths about the living God that need to be expressed or or perhaps best expressed through poetry. Um, I love this quote. Uh, This is from C.S. Lewis on his reflection on the psalms, and um, he puts it so much better than I can. Lewis writes, it seems to me appropriate Almost inevitable that when the great imagination, which in the beginning for its own delight and for the delight of men and angels, and in their proper mode of beasts had invented and formed the whole world of nature, submitted to express itself in human speech, that speech should sometimes be poetry. For poetry, too, was a little incarnation, giving body to what had been invisible and inaudible." And this is not poetry that is just simply meant to be recited, right? But poetry that was set to music and meant to be sung aloud. This is uh, an interesting thing when you consider how intensely personal a lot of these psalms are. It's hard for me to imagine people engaging them in any kind of communal fashion. We looked at Psalm 51 a few weeks back, David's psalm of confession, which he wrote after his affair with Bathsheba. This is more or less the title of that psalm. And it was submitted to the music director. I can't imagine David going, I got this new one I wrote. I think it would be awesome if we sang it as a church. But I, I guess that's what happened. I'm grateful that it did um, that, and that these psalms speak with the authority of God's word. In this way, David's song and his personal account of sin and failure becomes our song. The personal becomes universal. Right? This is our story too. Specific details may vary from person to person, but none of us comes to Christ without first acknowledging our sinfulness and our deep need for mercy and forgiveness. And so it is with the rest of the Psalms. They are not antiquated or irrelevant songs, but they are intimate and immediate, and like the rest of God's Word, as much ours as those who wrote them. That being said, I want to pray for our time together before we dive into. Psalm 136 is where we'll be at today. Um, By the way, if you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along, there should be one in one of the seats in front of you. Also, if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home with you as your gift from us. It'll also be uh, on the back screen, the verses, while we go through it as well. Um, But let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Psalm 136. Um, 
Thank you for uh, just the opportunity to sit with it, um, Lord, that you would expand my mind as it pertains to your steadfast love, Lord, that that, like any other aspect of your character, cannot be put in a box. Um, so, Lord, would you continue to grow us? Would we continue to see you in the way your steadfast love is carried from the beginning of the world through creation, through the redemption of your people, ultimately to where we are here today, that your steadfast love endures forever? Lord, would you be with me? Would you be gracious with me as I deliver your word? Would you speak through me, Holy Spirit? Would you convict the hearts of our people, Lord, and encourage us and remind us that you are good, that you are with us, and that you love us deeply more than words could even say? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, Psalm 136. Some of you are probably familiar with this psalm, at least in part, if you attended any contemporary worship service in the early 2000s. And I'm going to test this out real quick. We'll see what happens. So if I were to sing, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King, you guys might sing. Yes. And I was worried he was going to be totally silent during that part. But that was it. That was everywhere in the early 2000s. But there's plenty more where that came from. And not all these things I would immediately associate with God's love. For example, looking at verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever. And probably not the first example I would think of when it comes to God's steadfast, never-ending love. Or even verse 5, to him who by his understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. Again, not the ascription of praise that I would most readily assign to this aspect or, or action of God's character. Going back to the blessings and praise series we were in just a few months back, uh, we looked at uh, some famous benedictions and doxologies in scripture. And in doxologies, we talked about, we call out something God has done or something God is going to do or some aspect of his character, and then we ascribe attributes to God that account for that action or character trait. So looking at verse 5 again, to him who by his understanding made the heavens, when I reflect on his creation, I call to mind his wisdom, his power, his beauty, but I don't necessarily make the connection to God's steadfast love, although I certainly believe that God's steadfast love endures forever. I was struggling in my mind to understand exactly how his steadfast love uh, pointed to this. And so of all God's attributes, why was this the one ascribed to him here? And it got me thinking uh, that there was something more that I could learn about God's love in studying this passage. And so that's kind of why I went with it, to satiate my own curiosity, not to grow in knowledge for knowledge's sake, but for my own edification and to hopefully be changed by it. Um, this is how I hope to approach God's word with humility, with an openness that acknowledges that I haven't begun to scratch the surface as it pertains to God's love or God's character. If God's love is as Frederick L. M. Lehman puts it in his hymn, Love of God, which we sing often around here, when he writes, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, those stretched from sky to sky. And in that sense, we can never completely comprehend the vast love of God. But for his glory and for our ultimate joy, I believe we can come to more fully understand and experience it. And I think Psalm 136 has some really profound insight in that regard. A little bit of background before we dive into the verses. 
Uh, Psalm 136 is referred to as the great Hallel. That is a response of thanks or, or uh, thanksgiving or praise directed toward Yahweh. Um, a lot of commentators believe that Psalm 135 and 136 form a pair of songs that are meant to be read together. I wish I'd known that before I picked this one. Um, I think we'll be okay. We'll get to Psalm 135 in its own time. There seems to be a lot of similarities there. Um, but I think it'll suffice to say that at the end of Psalm 135, there's this call to bless the Lord, and Psalm 136 seems to be the response to that call. We'll dive into these verses here. Um, looking at verses 1 through 3, the psalmist writes, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. So right away we get a sense of this uh, rhythm, this sort of call and response in the psalm, which will continue to the very end, right? God's steadfast love or his, his hesed. I was told you have to really dig deep into the throat to pronounce that word correctly. Um, and in light of that, I feel that I just need to take a moment to acknowledge the man who not only taught me how to say that word right, but who taught me what it meant to live my life in light of it. Um, I'm going to put his picture up on the screen. Um, it's been, uh, I think it seems appropriate to mention him in this moment. This is Paul Cunningham. Um, I never referred to him as that. To me, he was always and always will be. My pastor, Paul, um, he died in a car accident this past week. Uh, I hadn't spoken to him in a few years, but no amount of time that has elapsed will ever diminish the impact that he had on me and my family. He was not only my pastor, the man that married me and my wife, but also my brother and my friend, and uh, I'll never forget the day that I came to him in a, just a state of spiritual poverty, uh, destitute, just trapped in this cycle of sin that I didn't seem to be able to get out of, and uh, I never told anybody about it, so I, I came to him and, and confessed these things, and I wasn't sure what to expect, because to me, growing up, church was a place to hide, um, but uh, the way he responded would be the way that you would ask anyone to respond. He just embraced me and entered into that with me. Uh, and when he could have played it safe, instead he shared struggles that he had, his own sin and doubt struggles. And he told me that um, he was in my corner when I needed to hear it most. And so um, it is through the love and grace of God which flowed through him that I came to understand my deep need for a gospel-centered community. And I would not be standing here preaching this sermon. So it seemed only right to mention him. Um, he never appeared on any sort of pedestal, um, but always seemed to be in the trenches with me, fighting alongside me, um, helping one another to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, and looking forward to that city whose architect and builder is God. Um, and now he's home. Praise be to God, whose steadfast love endures forever. It is the unifying theme that undergirds each of these statements and binds them all together. And we'll see how it does that in each one of these four sections. I think the psalm breaks neatly into. In this first section here, the author of this psalm wants to establish and remind us of who God is. That is his innate character and authority over all things. And the only appropriate response to who God is, is praise in the form of gratitude. Right? We are called to give thanks to God, not simply because he exists, but because of who he is. And who is he? What can we say about this God? Why do we give thanks and praise to him? Not because he's scary or because there are negative consequences if we don't do it. It says here we give thanks to God 
because he is good. God's love, as we shall see throughout this psalm, is not some uh, abstract concept, but has real tangible outworking in who he is and what he does, which are one and the same. Then goes on to say that this good God is, in fact, the only God. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. There is no one above him. There is no one like him. He alone is God. And as we shall see, the proof, as they say, is in the pudding. God demonstrates this love for his people in numerous ways. Going into verses 4 through 9, we read, To him alone who does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. The theme of these five verses is fairly straightforward. God's love demonstrated in creation. But how exactly? How does creation point to his love? I think if we allow ourselves to sit with this question for long enough, it'll wreck us as it has me for sitting with it. Um, to gain some insight, I find it helpful to go back to the beginning of the creation story. And we won't spend a lot of time unpacking this here. If you haven't read through the book of Genesis, I encourage you to do that. Um, but I, I just wanted to draw attention to a couple key phrases here. So to summarize briefly, God creates the heavens and the earth and everything on it, not as some indifferent exercise, but with wisdom and understanding, as it says in Psalm 136. And he enjoys what he's doing, right? He has to comment on his creation. He says, this is good, <laughs> what I've done. And that's telling to me, God, who is good, creates good things, and he loves the things he creates. I wanted to show this. Um, uh, I went with my wife to see this painting at the LACMA in L.A. years ago. This is uh, Gustav Klimt's portrait of Adele Blockbauer. Uh, to see it in a photograph doesn't really do it justice. I mean, it's a, it's a massive painting. It's about five feet, five feet by five feet, which covers a large portion of the wall there. It took him over four years to complete. When you get up close to it, you can really see why. He has all these meticulous sort of designs etched into it, and he paints it all in these gold and silver leaf, and the whole thing just kind of radiates with his golden aura. And as we are being ushered through the line with everyone else so that we can get a glimpse at it, we all just kind of marveled. Everyone was commenting on the, the attention to detail and the beauty and just the opulence of this painting. And I'll tell you this, not one person said anything like this. Man, I don't think this guy really cared about what he was doing here. Or uh, this felt a little rushed. Or I think I could have painted this. Or even more foolishly, no one dared presume that this masterpiece before us came to be as a result of some accidental collision of paint colors. Right? This was uh, a labor of love that this guy did. But Gustav Klimt, whether he realized it or not, is not just uh, you know, creating something out of nothing. He's mimicking the creator. God made gold and precious metals, as well as the subject of this painting and many others, the human form. He made us in his own image. And I love the language God uses in Genesis 1. Again, this is not an account of some apathetic or mechanical process, but that of a master creator who loves what he's doing. His creation of man is intimate and personal. 
we read that he breathed life, the very life of God, into the nostrils of Adam, and he placed him in a garden, paradise, with, I love the way this is worded too, every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I love that. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Um, for you parents in the room, maybe you can relate to this, but when I found out that I was going to be a dad for the first time and I was going to have a, have a son, one of the things I was most excited about was, was all the cool stuff I was going to get to show him. Like I was going to get to feed him ice cream for the first time. He was going to get to taste that and take him on his first roller coaster and uh, show him Jaws for the first time, you know, the thing that every father longs to do with his son. Um, and I think there's something of that here in these verses. And God says, look at all this. Uh, I created it all for you. And by the way, meet Eve, your wife. Um, I created you guys for each other. Go and enjoy. I love this. Uh, Derek Kidner puts it this way in his commentary. The theme of God's creation invites us to delight in our environment, known to him as no mere mechanism, but as a work of steadfast love. And we were designed for this, to dwell in paradise with God and with one another in love. And the more I thought about it, the more this idea began to uh, kind of frame and inform my own memories and experiences. And I started thinking about things like uh, this time I was in Asheville with my wife. We were staying at an Airbnb just outside the city, which if you've ever been to Asheville, there's really nothing outside the city. And, uh, and it was late, and I went outside, and I'd never seen blackness the way I saw it there. And you're able to really see the sky, the heavens declaring the glory of God, and this vast tapestry of stars. And then I, it seemed like my mind was playing tricks on me, like the, the stars had sort of uh, come down, and I was like in the midst of them, and I realized that we were just surrounded by thousands of fireflies. Um, I'd never seen anything like that. And then I thought, uh, love made this, right? Or that time I was uh, with the boys around the Chattahoochee Bend at night, we were chasing this armadillo through the woods. <laughs> Love made that. Or the time that we caught a blue crab on Myrtle Beach and kept it captive before we released it. Love made that. And it's kind of echoed through my head as I was going about my week that it, the different things I saw and the different people I encountered, love made those things. So it shows how much I know. God's creation points to his steadfast love. His steadfast love endures forever. And even after sin enters the world, we find this to be true. God's steadfast love as it pursues his people. We read in verses 10 through 22, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to, his, to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Verses 4 through 9 demonstrates God's steadfast love in his creation. Then verses 10 through 22 show God's love and his mighty acts of redemption throughout human history. And you could sort of imagine several starting points for this section. I, uh, I would have started maybe with God's covenant with Abraham, the promise of land, descendants, uh, and a future blessing of redemption, which might have been a good starting place there. But the psalmist doesn't start there. He starts with this section uh, in the book of Exodus, in particular with the last of the plagues on Egypt, the death of every firstborn son. I have some thoughts on maybe why this is, but I'll, I'll save them to the very end just to keep the, the flow of things going. As the story goes, Pharaoh, many plagues and a lot of heartache, later at last releases God's people, though he changes his mind afterwards and decides to pursue them with the Egyptian army at his side. And the language used here in the psalm is, is really great. God performs these great miracles to make a way for his people. Right? Nothing can stop his plan for redemption. Not the greatest army in the world at the time, not even the Red Sea, which as a strategy of escape, it seems like that'd be the worst place to go. Let's walk straight towards the sea. We're stuck here and there's an army behind us. And yet that's where God leads them. And God doesn't leave them there. He makes a way. He parts the waters of the Red Sea and his people walk safely through it to the other side. And Pharaoh, and just, um, never thought about this until recently, but just had to be absolutely insane with sin. Um, not to stop and acknowledge going like, hey, I don't see this every day, like the waters parting kind of thing, but he decides to pursue him straight through it uh, to his own demise, the waters closing in on him and his army, destroying them all and bringing God's people to safely through it. The same God who created the sea can control and manipulate it for his purposes. And then afterwards, we have this sort of long wilderness period, which the psalm talks about. 40 years of wandering, but God is with his people this whole time. Cloud by day, fire by night, light and shelter in their lives. His steadfast love on display as he cares for these people, raining down manna from heaven, water from a rock. He has delivered them and he continues to deliver them throughout the story. But these are a stubborn people because they're like you and me. Oh, they have been emancipated physically in their minds and in their hearts. They are still enslaved. And so a good portion of them die off, all but a couple, in fact, and God preserves a remnant as he always does. And he makes good on his promise to Abraham. Verses 17 through 22 detail some of Israel's conquests en route to this promised land. When God is for his people, who can stand against them, right? Kings are no match for God. And Psalm, two, Psalm, uh, Psalm 136 mentions a couple of these encounters. Specifically, um, you guys may or may not be familiar with these dudes, but Sion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. You can read about them both in Numbers chapter 21. In the first example, the Israelites attempt a diplomatic approach in dealing with Sion, king of the Amorites, by sending him a letter asking politely, can we please you know, pass through your land? We promise not to touch anything. Just let us go through here. Um, but Sion, king of the Amorites, will have none of it. He instead sends an army to attack Israel, and just as quickly they are destroyed by Israel, who then take possession of their land. And soon after this, they encounter Og, king of Bashan, which is fun to say. And he's a bit scary, it seems. Tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 3 that he is the descendant of the Raphaites, which are kind of a a race of giant people, uh, describes them in the book of Amos as like cedars, and it even talks about his bed a little bit, which is 13 feet wide. So this is a big, 
a big dude. Um, it could have been a little intimidating to God's people. But God assures them of victory. They destroy Og and his army effortlessly by the mighty hand of God. And then what was previously their land now becomes the land of the Israelites. And all these details are meant to remind God's people and to remind us of his covenant love and his faithfulness, which brings us into these final verses. And I love what it says here, verses 23 through 25. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. They seem to serve both as a summary of sorts and also a reframing that looks back on what we've already read and forward from when this song was written to the first coming of Christ and even beyond that to Christ's second coming, which is a nice segue into this question that Jamie has been asking throughout the series. How does this psalm point to Jesus? All right, this is the question that rounds everything out. To understand God's steadfast love Fully, we need look no further than the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 3.16, you guys probably know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 4.17, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This love existed before creation, It tells us here, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1.4. And this love was active in creation. It rules over and sustains all of creation as well. We read in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the promised one of Genesis 3, who will bruise the serpent's head. He is the firstborn of all creation, the true Passover lamb struck down and crushed by God himself for our sake. He is the one who delivers us out of our bonds of sin and shame. The one who made a way back to the Father when no way was possible. A miracle far more impressive than even the parting of the Red Sea. He is the one who remembers us in our lowly estate. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he is the one who rescues us from our foes, our true enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He is the bread of life, the living water, the food that satisfies And in him we are promised so much more than an earthly inheritance. We are promised God himself to dwell in a perfect kingdom for all eternity. As it says in Revelation 19, 16, with the one on his robe and on his thigh has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As one commentator put it, from the beginning of creation to the climax of redemption, from the first making of the heavens to the final inheritance of the saints, All is to be seen against the background of the love of God. Steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Which leads us to, again, a return to the beginning, which is to give thanks to God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. And we're going to do that in a couple ways to come. I'm going to worship this God in 
uh, the, the receiving of communion. Uh, we do this every week here at Cross Point. We have communion stations on either side and in the back, and we'll have the band come up and play through one of the songs and give you time just to kind of sit with this idea of God's steadfast love and what that means for you. This communion is for Christians. We invite you to come and receive of it gladly. Truly, this is an act of love and amazing grace. We take the bread representing his broken body and dip it in the cup representing his spilled blood for us. If you're not a Christian, we ask that you would not partake of communion, but that your next step will be one of repentance this morning. If you sit with this idea of God's steadfast love, it is for you. If you're wrestling with that, if God is stirring something in your heart, come and find me or find Jamie or someone else to talk to and pray with you. We'd love to unpack more about what that means. We're also going to worship him through our song. Very appropriate, right? This is not a dispensable or optional part of our service, but a necessary integral part to sing. I can't imagine going to a church where this isn't incorporated as an aspect of worship. I don't know if any church, such church exists. We sing of that which he loved to the God who first loved us. And we can now take up this banner cry, joining the chorus of believers before us and give thanks to God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. I'd love to pray for us and then we'll enter into this time of worship. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.